We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're there in Luke, chapter number 19, and we are making our way through the gospel of Luke in this verse-by-verse study, and we are on a journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're there in Luke 19. We're going to begin tonight in verse number 11, and there's very few of you that would probably notice, but we're skipping verses 1 through 10, and we haven't covered those yet, but we're going to come back and cover those on Sunday morning. Right in the middle of this chapter, there is a parable that goes from verses 11 through 27, so we're going to deal with that tonight, and then on Sunday morning, we'll deal with verses 1 through 10, the story of Zacchaeus, and we'll end uh, Sunday night with the rest of this chapter, and of course, the triumphant entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into uh, Jerusalem. And uh, I think Sunday night's sermon might be interesting to some of you if you've ever wondered why it is that Jesus would heal people or save people and then tell them not to tell anyone, we'll be talking about that on Sunday night. But tonight, we are dealing with this parable known as the parable of the 10 pounds. And it's a deep uh, parable, and to be honest with you, it's a little bit of a dark parable, uh, and it's, it's an interesting parable. I'll tell you right now, that it's a difficult parable to outline. Usually when I preach sermons to you, even though I preach expository sermons verse by verse, I outline them for you and give you outlines, but there is no outline for this uh, parable tonight, so we're just going to walk through it, and uh, I will point out some things uh, as we uh, move through uh, this passage. So just be aware that I won't be giving you any points tonight, uh, but I am going to give you a lot of cross-references, so be ready to flip in your Bible, and of course, it's Bible study night, so that's a good there. If you look at verse 11, Luke 19 and verse 11, the Bible says, and as they heard these things, he, and of course, this is Jesus, added and spake a parable, and Jesus is going to give this parable, which is known as the parable of the 10 pounds. Now, I want you to notice that in verse number 11, the Bible tells us, and Jesus, the Bible tells us why it is that Jesus gave this uh, parable. There's two reasons. If you look at verse 11 there, The Bible says, and as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because, here's reason number one, because he was nigh to Jerusalem. So the Bible, specifically the narrator, which is Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, specifically tells us that the reason that Jesus added and spake this parable was because he was nigh to Jerusalem. And of course, we know that we've been with Jesus really for the last 10 chapters in the book of Luke, if you've Uh, Notice, we've been on this road with the Lord Jesus Christ, making our way slowly uh, to Jerusalem for the crucifixion of Christ. And as he's getting close to uh, Jerusalem, we know that he is in Jericho. We're going to see, of course, the story of Jericho, uh, uh, of Zacchaeus in Jericho on Sunday morning. And as he's leaving Jericho and making his way to Jerusalem, he's getting close to Jerusalem. And the Bible says, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, he gave this parable. I want you to notice also there in verse 11, at the last part of verse verse 11, the Bible says, and because, here's the second reason why he gave the parable, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So I just want you to notice from verse 11, there are two reasons the Bible tells us why it is that Jesus gave this parable. He gives this parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem, number one, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So that should tell you a couple of things of what we're going to learn about this parable. We're going to learn something about Jerusalem or the people in Jerusalem, which we know, of course, are the Jews. And we're going to learn something about the timing of the kingdom because Jesus is giving this parable because as he's making his way to Jerusalem, he's got this huge crowd with him. Everybody's in a very good mood. And they're getting this idea that Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem and lead some sort of revolution or some sort of revolt. This is what we'll see on Sunday night, what Palm Sunday was all about. They thought Jesus was going to come in to free them from the Roman Empire. And so Jesus gives this parable to help them understand there is a coming kingdom, and he is a king that will establish that kingdom, but it's not now. He says he's giving this parable because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear And he's giving the parable because of the fact that he was nigh to Jerusalem and he felt the need to teach these things. So notice there in verse 12, and we'll get into the parable. 
He said, therefore, a certain nobleman, a certain nobleman. And if you take notes or if you like taking notes or if you don't mind writing in your Bible, right next to that term there, certain nobleman or nobleman, you can write uh, the Lord Jesus Christ or represents the Lord Jesus Christ. In this parable, this certain nobleman is represented by the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the one being represented by this certain nobleman. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman, notice, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So the parable is about a certain nobleman who went into a far country. Why did he go into a far country? In order to receive a kingdom and he's going to return. So he's leaving and he's returning. And we, of course, know because Jesus said that he's giving this parable because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Jesus is explaining to them that he is the certain nobleman. And though he is going to come back to establish a kingdom, he will not come back to establish that kingdom until his return, until what we refer to as the second coming or the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you're there in Luke 19, That's obviously our text for tonight. Keep your place there. But go with me if you would to the book of John, the gospel of John, John chapter 14. If you just flip over from Luke to John, John 14. And let's just run a couple of verses. John 14, look at verse 1. Jesus is simply explaining to them that yes, he will establish a kingdom, but first he has to go to a far country. And when he returns, that is when he will establish the kingdom. John 14, 1. There's lots of verses we could look at regarding the uh, leaving, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ or the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He spoke about it a lot. I'm not going to take the time to run a bunch of verses, but let me just give you one famous reference here. John 14, 1. Jesus said this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Notice verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Notice what he says. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. So here in John 14, Jesus told the disciples, I'm leaving. I'm going to go. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Notice verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus taught this idea throughout his ministry that he was leaving and he was coming back, that this was just the first advent or the first coming of Christ, but there's coming a second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is at that time that he will establish his kingdom. To go back to Luke chapter 9, if you would, look at verse 13. Luke chapter 9 and verse 13. So we saw the certain nobleman, and that represents, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. The certain nobleman is going to go into a far country. That's heaven. Jesus ascended up to heaven. And he's going to return and establish a kingdom. Now, in verse 13, we find another uh, group of characters or another representation of characters for this parable, Luke 19, 13. And he called his 10 servants. And if you don't mind writing in your Bible or jotting down notes in your Bible, next to the word servants there or 10 servants, you can write believers or Christians. The 10 servants in this parable represent believers. They represent those of us that are here on this earth in between the first and the second coming of Christ. Because, of course, he is the certain nobleman that is leaving. And he, when he left, he left us. Notice verse 13. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds. Okay? So this is where we get the, the, the title of the parable or the name of the parable, the parable of the ten pounds. Why? Because Jesus... The certain nobleman left 10 servants and he left them with 10 pounds. Now, the 10 servants represent believers, represent Christians. And the 10 pounds, if you want to jot this down next to your verse there, next to the word pounds or 10 pounds, you can write the word gifts or resources. The pounds are the things that God has given you and I that he has given for us to steward as the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice there verse 13. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, notice the words, he says, occupy till I come. I love that little phrase, occupy till I come. That word, when we think of this word occupy till I come, uh, we often think 
in some sort of a defensive, you know, our job on this earth is to just kind of hunker down and, and bunker down and, and, and just survive uh, till the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But that is not what this phrase means. The word occupy means to take or to fill up a space. It's actually a military term. Uh, we would use it in the idea of like a military occupation. When a military is taking over an area, this is the same idea that Jesus is saying. He looked at his 10 servants and he said, occupy till I come. He said, I want you to take land. I want you to take space. I want you to fill up space. The idea is that we are not to be on the defense, but that we are to be on the offense, that we are to be like a military that is occupying this world for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, you've got 10 servants and you've got 10 pounds, and here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to further the work of God, further the kingdom of God. I want you to occupy till I come. So I want you to notice there, that the 10 servants are the believers and the 10 pounds are all the resources that God has given us. Now keep your place there in Luke and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you're there in Luke. You go past John, Acts, Romans, into the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. While you turn there, let me read to you from 1 Peter. You go to 1 Corinthians 12 uh, and verse 7 and I'll read to you from 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. 1 Peter 4, 10, the Bible says this, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Here the Bible tells us that every man, 1 Peter 4.10, you're going to 1 Corinthians 12.7, but in 1 Peter 4.10 the Bible says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The Bible is telling us, that God has given to every man, every man has received a gift from God. Are you there in 1 Corinthians 12? Look at verse 7. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, the Bible says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. And I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I want to just make this point. That the Bible teaches that every believer that gets saved... God gives them spiritual gifts. Now, we all don't get the same spiritual gifts. And I've taught and, and preached entire sermons on the subject of spiritual gifts multiple times. And you could look up those verses or look up those sermons and listen to them if you'd like. We don't, all don't get the same spiritual gifts, but we all get spiritual gifts. I want you to notice in the parable, there were 10 servants and 10 pounds. There weren't 10 servants and 8 pounds. It wasn't like, well, there are some servants that didn't get a pound. Every servant got something. And the Bible says that every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same. God has given you a gift, and God expects you to minister or to serve Him with that gift. Now, we all have different gifts. Some may have a gift or an aptitude to teach. Others may have a gift for ministry. Others may have a gift for administration or ruling. Others may have a gift of, uh, of all sorts of different things the Bible teaches us, but you are to use those gifts to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Now what I like about this verse here in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 is that the Bible says that it is given to every man to profit with all. You know, the truth is this, that God does not mind if you take the gifts, the talents, the resources that he has given you and you use those in the secular world to profit with all, God doesn't care if you use your gifts and you use them out in the business world or use them out to educate your children or use them in whatever area of life you find yourself in to profit with all. God doesn't have a problem with that. He's given you the Holy Spirit and he's given you those gifts and he wants you to use them to profit with all. But here's what I want you to understand. God doesn't mind, men, if you take those skills and those gifts that God has given you and use them out in the secular world. But he says, you better use them for the house of God as well. You better use them for the work of God as well. He said, I don't care if you profit with all. But here's the problem with the average Christian is that God gives you talents or ability or time or treasure. And then you use it out for yourself and the world and you forget about God. The Bible says that as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same. And here's what I know about you. May not, I may not know a lot about you, but here's what I know. You have a gift. If you're a servant, you have a pound. 
There were 10 servants and there were 10 pounds, and the command was, occupy till I come. Amen. Keep your place there in 1 Corinthians. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians. Uh, so I'd like you to keep your place with a ribbon or a bookmark or something there. Go back to Luke chapter 19. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, we find another set of characters or another representation. In verse 12, we saw the certain nobleman. We saw that he went into a far country to receive a kingdom, and he's going to return. Of course, that is a representation or a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 13, we saw the ten servants with the ten pounds who were commanded to occupy till I come. That is a picture, hopefully, of, of you and I, servants of God, uh, believers, Christians, soul winners, who've been given opportunities and resources and talents and treasures, and God expects us to use those uh, for the work of God to occupy till I come. And then in verse 14, we have another group. Notice it, verse Luke 19 and verse 14. But, here's the third group, his citizens. And if you don't mind writing in your Bible, next to the phrase his citizens, you can write, I don't know, just write this, the Jews. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So I want you to notice that in the parable, his citizens and the ten servants are two different groups. The ten servants are given ten pounds and told to occupy till I come. His citizens, however, hated him. His citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So the citizens in this story are the Jews, are the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You say, how do you know that? Well, first of all, remember that he told us there at the beginning of the, the passage in verse 11 that he gave this parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem. What prompted the parable was the fact that he was getting close to Jerusalem and he thought, let me tell you something about the citizens of my kingdom. So these citizens are the Jews. You say, is that the only reason you believe that the Jews are, uh, are the citizens just because he was nigh to Jerusalem? Well, that's definitely a good reason. I mean, he said, he said, I'm giving this parable because I'm coming close to Jerusalem. Let me tell you something about Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Judea, which is the area where the Jews are. But even the, the passage itself will prove to you that the citizens are the Jews. You say, how do you know that? Well, first of all, they're his citizens. His citizens are the Jews because Jesus was from their country. They were his uh, uh, fellow uh, citizens. And not only that, he was from their country, but the Bible says that they hated him. So let's just run a couple of verses. Go to John 1, if you would. You're there in Luke. Flip over to John chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 1. So in the parable, you've got the 10 servants with the 10 pounds occupying till I come. But you have this other group, which are his citizens. And here's how Jesus described them. They hated him. They hated who? The certain noblemen. And sent messages after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So here's what we know about the citizens. They're from the same country as the certain noblemen, and they rejected the noblemen. They did not want him to reign over them. John 1.11, here's what the Bible says about Jesus. He came unto his own. Who are his own? The Jews. Jesus was of the lineage of Abraham and Isaac. He was of the lineage of, of David. He, he's of the lineage of the Jews. The Bible says that he came unto his own, but here's the problem, and his own received him not. And remember, what prompted the parable was the fact that Jesus was nigh unto Jerusalem, and we're going to learn on Sunday night that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the reason that Jesus is there is to be put to death. He's going to be delivered unto the Gentiles by the Jews. He's going to be betrayed by the Jews. It is his own people, his own citizens that hated him and that said, we will not have this man to reign over us. Go to John 19. Real quickly, you're there in John 1? Just flip over in John 19. Because in the parable, Jesus says his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Doesn't that kind of sound, doesn't that same sentiment 
we will not have this man, referring to Jesus, referring to a certain, a certain nobleman, we will not have this man to reign over us. Doesn't that sound very much like what the Jews said at the crucifixion of Christ, John 19, 15? But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? He's a certain nobleman. They're his citizens. Pilate is saying, you want me to crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. What were they saying? They were saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. They were saying, we reject him. Yes, we are his citizens, but we don't want to be under his kingdom. So the citizens in this story are uh, the Jews, specifically in Jerusalem, that are going to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. But obviously they represent uh, anyone and everyone that is antichrist, that is working against the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says that, he, uh, that, that, that if you believe that there is a Christ, but you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you are antichrist. Right, right. And the religion of the, uh, uh, the Jews' religion is an antichrist religion because of the fact that they believe that there is a Christ, but they just reject Jesus as the Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. So who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. They don't just deny the Son, but they believe in the God of the Old Testament. No, no, they deny the whole thing. They deny Moses. They deny the Old Testament law. They don't follow any of it. They are an Antichrist. The synagogue of Satan is what Jesus called them in Revelation. We're going to look at that here in a minute. They are an Antichrist religion. And Jesus is speaking about the Jews and about the spirit of Antichrist. And I want you to understand that because Jesus is about to fast forward into a little bit of end times uh, uh, teaching here. And you need to understand that the citizens are the Jews which are Antichrist because they believe in a Christ, but they reject Jesus as the Christ. That literally, by definition, makes them Antichrist. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. So go back to Luke 19. Look at verse 15. Luke 19, 15. So we got the characters, right? The certain nobleman is Jesus. He went into a far country. He ascended up to heaven. He's going to return. And when he returns, that's when he's going to establish his kingdom. That's why Luke 19, 11 says that he gave the parable because of the fact that they thought that the kingdom should appear immediately. And Jesus explained to them, no, it's not going to appear immediately. It's going to be a while. I won't establish my kingdom till the second coming. And then he says, also because he was drawing nigh unto Jerusalem, he was giving a parable about the Jews. And you need to understand that the connection to the Jews in end times prophecy is that they are antichrist. Now, they're not the antichrist. The antichrist, the man... The Antichrist is a person, but it is the Jews. His headquarters will be in Jerusalem. And it is the Jews that will lift him and empower him and put him into power. Obviously, we know the dragon is the one that gives him authority, but it will be the Jews that will be uh, promoting him. Luke 19, 15, look at it. And it came to pass. This is now Jesus getting into the parable. And this is why I say, at the beginning of the sermon, I started by saying, this is kind of a deep and a dark parable. Because this, like this is not a happy parable. This is not, you know, the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is a real feel-good, happy parable. This is Jesus being a little negative here when he's teaching these things. Luke 19, 15. And it came to pass that when he, who's the he, it's the certain nobleman, who we know, of course, represents the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was returned, having received the kingdom. Because remember, why did he teach the parable? Luke 19, 11, Because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. They thought they were going to go into Jerusalem on what now is known as Palm Sunday and, and praise God and say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord and say, Hosanna, uh, uh, and, and to praise Jesus. And they were going to make him a king. And Jesus was trying to explain to them, No, 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 I am a king and I do have a kingdom, but it will be when I return. And it came to pass when he was returned, having received his kingdom. So I want you to notice this and understand this, that the kingdom of Jesus, and I know you know this, you're a smart crowd, obviously. 
But we need to understand that the kingdom happens after his return. Go to Revelation 19, if you would. Revelation 19, the last book in the New Testament, should be fairly easy to find. Revelation 19. And sometimes I think to myself, do I even need to say this? This is pretty easy. This is, people should know this. But then I hear of people, not heretics on YouTube, I'm talking about independent funeral Baptists, who believe things like the millennial reign is not literal, or it's already happened, or it happened back in 70 AD. And I'm here to tell you something. The Bible says that there is a literal, physical, millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, when's it going to happen? That's what Jesus is trying to tell you. After his return. When's the kingdom? People say, oh, we're in the kingdom now. The kingdom has been since the cross. Or the kingdom has been since uh, 70 AD. Or the kingdom has been since, uh, all, you know, whenever. All these different dates that people want to throw out. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The kingdom is after my return. Revelation 19.11, we have the famous passage of Scripture dealing with the second coming or the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, of course, know that that's connected to the rapture, but this is when Jesus comes down to the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19.11, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he the judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head... Uh, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Notice the words. And his name is called the Word of God. That's, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember John 1.14? The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Revelation 19.14. Notice it. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. That's you and I, clothed in fine linen white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, don't miss it, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is a king, he has a kingdom, but it will not be established until his return. Now, you're there in Revelation 19. Flip over to Revelation 20. Revelation 19, you have the, the, the culmination of what's known as the second coming of Christ, which begins with the rapture and culminates with the battle of Armageddon. When, when we come down with him and fight the battle of Armageddon, really, we're just cheerleaders. We watch him do the fighting. And in Revelation 20 and verse 4, the Bible says, And I saw thrones. You say, what is that? And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That's the millennial reign, the physical millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, which happens after the battle of Armageddon or after the Lord Jesus Christ physically uh, comes uh, to this earth. Go to Luke 19. So we have the kingdom. The certain nobleman leaves, and then he comes back. When he comes back, he establishes his kingdom. Well, what's the first order of, uh, uh, of priority? What's the first order of service? What is the first thing that he wants to get done? Luke 19, 15. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, notice the chronology. People always want to tell you, oh, end times prophecy is not in chronology. It's funny because the, as you read the book of Revelation, you read all these other end times prophecy, they, you keep reading things like this, after the tribulation. That sounds like a chronology to me. And here it says, and it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, notice this word, then he commanded these servants... Remember the servants, the ten servants with ten pounds who were told, occupy till I come? Who are the servants? They're the believers. They're the Christians. Not the Jews. The Jews are the citizens. Then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. After he returns and he establishes the kingdom, What's the first order of service? The first order of service is gather up my servants. I want to see what they did with the pounds that I gave them. 
with the money that I gave them. And of course, we know in the parable, the money simply represents, it could be physical money that God has literally given you, but it could be other things, resources, talents, treasures. He says, call the servants together that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. He sets up the kingdom, and then, and then, it's the judgment of the servants. You say, what is that? Go to 2 Corinthians 5. I'm not sure if you kept your place. I think I asked you to keep your place in 1 Corinthians, or I meant to ask you to keep your place in 1 Corinthians. But go to 2 Corinthians. If, you're, if you kept your place in 1 Corinthians, after that, you have the book of 2 Corinthians. If not, you have Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 10. You say, what's the first thing we're going to do when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom? Oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be a lot of fun. Say, what are we going to do? He's going to judge you. He's going to call the ten servants. Then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. The judgment of the servants is what's theologically known as the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear. You're not getting out of it. If you're saved, if you're a servant, you're going to be there. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. Because in your body and in your life, God gave you pounds. He gave you resources. He gave you opportunities and talents and treasures and abilities. And he's going to gather us together. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And good or bad there is not referring to sinful or righteous. It's referring to value or no value. Did you produce anything... And by the way, this is one of the reasons why I like studying the Bible in its context in a verse-by-verse fashion because Jesus has already been on this kick. Remember, he recently talked to us about the unprofitable servant. And he's saying, hey, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to gather my servants to see how profitable they've been. That he might know how much every man had gained by trading. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Go back to Luke 19. Now, let me just say this. After salvation, the goal of the Christian life, is what Jesus is teaching. The purpose of the Christian life is for you and I to prepare ourselves for the day of judgment. Amen. Say, what am I supposed to do every day? What am I supposed to do when I wake up every day as a Christian? Here's your goal every day. You wake up and you ask yourself, what can I do today to prepare myself for the day of judgment? Because I'm a servant who's been given a pound and there's coming a day of reckoning, a day of accounting where God is going to look at everything he gave me and he's going to want to know how much every man had gained. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I've got to ask you the question, are you preparing for the day of judgment? What's, what? What's God going to think about what you've done with the opportunities that he's given you? The resources, the talents, the abilities. Now, let me just say this, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I I do need to make this point. There are some theological implications here regarding, here's a fancy word, eschatology. Regarding the teaching of the end times, which is what the word eschatology means. Because I want you to notice something, that according to Matthew 19, the parable of 10 pounds, and according to the book of Revelation, I'm about to show that to you in a minute, and according to just common sense and logic, the judgment comes after the establishment of the kingdom, which comes after the return of the certain nobleman, okay, So you have, he returns, establishes his kingdom, and then the first thing he does is he has the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment. Why? Because based off, we're going to see it here in a minute, based off how you do at the judgment seat of Christ will determine how you rule and reign with Christ 
during the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's very clear. In fact, let's just, let's just look at it. Look at Luke 19, verse 16. Remember in verse 15, he called, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him. In verse 16, the Bible says, then came the first. And this will remind you of Matthew 25, the very famous parable in Matthew 25 about the talents. It's, it's very similar. There's some differences, but it's a very similar parable. Luke 19, 16, then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound have gained 10 pounds. This guy was given one pound and he gained 10 pounds. And he said unto him, well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, thou hast, uh, I, no, notice the last part of verse 17 is what I want you to notice there. He says, because thou hast been faithful in uh, very little, have thou authority over 10 cities. I want you to notice that. Before he came back, when he left to establish his kingdom and came back, he left them with 10 pounds. But then after he judges them or he calls them together to see how much every man gained by trading, the first shows up and he says, thy pound to gain 10 pounds. And he says, well, thou good servant, because thou has been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over 10 cities. He's telling him, I'm going to, because now I've established my kingdom, I'm going to put you in authority over 10 cities. Verse 18. And the second came saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. This guy didn't gain as many pounds as the first guy, but he gained, he gained half, pretty good. Notice verse 19. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. So I want you to notice that in the parable, these individuals are put in authority over cities. One over ten cities, one over five cities. Why is Jesus saying this? Here's why. Because that's how it's going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. Go back to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, when we produce with what God's given us, we will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And based on how we come out at that judgment, we will have the opportunity, the reward is to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. I think people don't really understand this, and I just want to slow down and make sure you get this. Revelation 20 and verse 4. And I saw thrones. You see the S at the, at the end of the word thrones there? Not a throne, but thrones, plural. This kingdom has more than one throne. Now, obviously, there's the main throne, the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. But under this throne, there are other thrones. This is why we saw, we saw that in Revelation 19, when he came on the horse, Remember, on his, on his leg, on his thigh, were written the words, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not just a king, he's a king over kings. He's not just a lord, he's a lord over lords. That's not just a fancy thing we like to say, oh, he's king of kings and lord of lords. No, that's literal. In the millennial reign, Jesus is the king that is going to be over all the kings. He's the Lord that will be over all the lords. His throne will be over all the thrones. But please understand something. There'll be other people wearing crowns. There'll be other people sitting on thrones. Not equivalent to Jesus and not above Jesus, but under him, there'll be a system of ruling. Look at Revelation 24. And I saw thrones, plural, and him. Is that what it says? No, and they, plural, sat upon them, plural. They sat upon them. They sat upon what? Thrones. And judgment was given unto them. What does that mean? The people that sat on the thrones, judgment was given unto them. That means that the authority to judge, the authority to rule was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Don't miss this. We, we, we like those little phrases. Oh, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. They lived, don't miss these words, and reigned. It's not just the millennial reign of Christ. It is the millennial reign of Christ. But you and I will rule and reign with Christ, under Christ, below Christ. 
This is why Jesus already told the disciples. He told the 12 that they that the 12 will sit on 12 thrones ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is the one who will sit on the throne of David. He will be the king of kings and lord of lords. But there's going to be a structure to this millennial reign. Well, Jesus will be the king of kings, and he will be ruling at the throne of David, which is in, in Jerusalem. But the 12 disciples are going to be ruling on 12 thrones, the 12 tribes of Israel. And what Jesus is teaching us, because see, here's what Christians think. They think, oh yeah, we're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ, and then we're, we're earning crowns, right? You got the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of this, the crown of that. You get a crown for being a soul winner, and some people think you get a crown for being a pastor, and you get a crown for being a martyr, and you get a crown for this, and you get these crowns. And then we think, oh yeah, you're just going to get your crown, and then you're going to throw your crown and cast your crown at the feet of Jesus, and it'll be the way that you show him your thankfulness. And look, that's true. We're going to be receiving crowns, we're going to receive crowns, and we're going to take our crowns, and we're going to cast them at the feet of Jesus. And if you're not, you don't have a crown to cast, you're going to look like a loser. And what you're going to look like is what you are, which is selfish because you lived your life for yourself. But let me explain something to you. After we're done with that worship service, we're going to pick those crowns back up and put them back on. You say, why? Because those crowns are going to represent authority. Those, along with those crowns, we're going to be ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will reign over ten cities. Some will reign over five cities. Some of you maybe aren't going to receive a crown, but he's going to give you like a dog poop, you know, picker-upper or something. Be like, well, this is your job. You're such a lame Christian. You get to, you know, follow these four beasts, and when they go doo-doo, pick it up. I don't, I don't know. I'm just, tell, I'm, I'm just telling you, God says he's going to judge your life. So, well, how do I prepare for that? Well, he's giving you pounds. He's given you money and resources and time and treasure. He's given you abilities. And he wants you to do something with it. When he comes back, he's going to gather us together that he might know how much every man had gained and will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now let me just real quickly give you the theological implication. Remember, eschatology. The pre-tribbers, or those who believe or teach the pre-tribulation rapture, will separate the second coming of Christ and the rapture as two different events. They'll separate them by seven years. They'll say the first thing that's going to happen is the rapture, and then the second coming of Christ is seven years later, the seven-year tribulation period, which is that term is not found in the Bible. You will not find anywhere in the Bible. You'll, you'll, you'll find a seven-year period. You'll find a tribulation period, but you'll never anywhere in the Bible find this term. Seven-year tribulation period. doesn't exist. But they say, oh, no, the rapture is going to happen, and then during the seven-year tribulation period, we're going to be up in heaven doing the judgment seat of Christ. Well, that's wrong. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus says the, seven, the, 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 the judgment seat of Christ happens after I come back at the beginning of the millennial reign. You say, well, what, what about, what about the, the second coming and, and the rapture? Well, just let me let you know a little secret. They're the same event. All, and I've taught and preached on that. I mean, it's so obvious in the Bible. It's just crazy. So we have the judgment of the servants that are going to rule and reign with Christ. But there's other servants. Go back to Luke 19. Luke 19. Keep your place in 1 Corinthians if you would. And go to Luke 19. Look at verse 20. And another came. So remember, we had the first that came. He had 10 pounds, and he was given 10 cities, authority over 10 cities. And I think that's literal. And I don't, you know, I don't know how God's going to do it. I mean, Jesus told the, 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 the 12, you're going to rule on 12 thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel. And I don't know how the rest of it is going to work. You know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm hoping that I get to rule, uh, you know, in Sacramento, the throne of Sacramento, which is not that great. <laughs> Maybe I can swap it for something. Luke 19, 20. And another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound. Notice what he says. Which I have kept laid up in a napkin. 
Some of you can write right, right there next to another came. Just, just put an arrow and just write your name. Because that's what you've been doing with the resources and time and ability that God's given you. Kept it hid. Kept it away. I've kept laid up a napkin, for I feared thee, because thou art an austere. Thou art an austere man. That word means severe or strict. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taken up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou. He says, here's what he's saying. He said, you could have, at the very least, you could have gave not, he said, wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, and at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. He says, at the very least, you could put my money in the bank, and I could have received mine own or required mine own with usury. The word usury means interest. He's saying, you did nothing. I gave you this talent, and you have laid it up in a napkin and kept it for yourself and did nothing with the time and the treasures and the talents and the resources and the opportunities that I've given you. I just want you to notice just real quickly. It's interesting because he says there at the end of Luke 19.23 that at my coming, right? Because that's when, when is the judgment seat of Christ? At his coming. Not during the seven-year tribulation period. At my coming, I might have required, I want you to notice these two words, mine own. See, the 10 pounds, he gave them to the 10 servants, but you know who those 10 pounds belong to? Him. Jesus. Those were not your pounds. Those were my pounds. That was not your money. That was my money. He said, that I might have required mine own with usury. Go to 1 Corinthians 4 if you would. 1 Corinthians 4. I just like to talk about this whenever it comes up in Scripture because I think it's interesting. First of all, understand this, that God expects something from what He has given us. He is an austere man. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taken up that I laid not down and reaping what I did not sow. But I want you to notice that everything that God has given you, God says, it's mine. It's mine own. The ten, the ten pounds, the ten talents, the ten treasures, they're mine. They're not yours. You, in this life, are a steward, a manager, one who stewards the resources of another. The resources you have belong to God. First Corinthians 4, 7, For who maketh thee to differ from another? I love this, I love this passage. You should really look at it. First Corinthians 4, 7, Who maketh thee to differ from another? We like to highlight our differences. Look at how much money I make versus how much money you make. Look at where I live versus where you live. Look at what I drive versus what you drive. Look at how I dress versus what you uh, wear. Or, or even other things. Look how intelligent I am versus you or, or good looking I am versus you. But here's what God says. Who maketh thee to differ from another? If you're different than somebody else, if you're better than somebody else, who did that? Where did that come from? Who maketh thee to differ from another? Or what hast thou that thou dost not receive? And here's the answer to the question. Nothing. There's nothing you have that wasn't given to you. There's nothing you have that you did not receive. You say, well, I got all my wealth because of my strength that God gave you. I got all my wealth because of my intelligence that God gave you. I got all my strength because whatever you have... What hast thou that thou dost not receive? Now, if thou dost receive it, why dost thou glory? As if thou hast not received it. Here's what he's saying. In the Christian life, the Christian who realizes he's a servant who's been given time and treasure and opportunities and resources to steward on behalf of the Lord, has nothing to boast about. Has nothing to brag about. A Christian should never brag. You say, why should a Christian ever brag? Here's why. Because nothing I have is my own. Everything I have has been given to me and belongs to God. And He will judge me for how I stewarded the resources He gave me. 
First Chronicles 29, don't turn there, let me just read this for you, but I love this verse when it comes to this idea of stewardship. First Chronicles 29, 14, here's what David said when they were taking an offering for the temple of God. He says, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after the story? They're bringing this big uh, offering to God and they said, who are we to be able to offer so willingly after the story? And then he says these words, I love it. He says, for all things come of thee. And of thine own have we given thee. Don't, don't, don't ever say, oh, I gave this to God. You didn't give nothing to God. God gave you his son. And all things come from him. And when we do give, and when we do spend, and when we do invest in the work of God, and when we take the pound that he's given us, and use it to occupy till he comes, we have simply given of thine own. Back to him. Go back to Luke 19. Look at verse 24. So you got the guy who kept it laid up in a napkin, didn't do anything. He says, For I fear thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest thou didst not sow. He says, out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Luke 19, 24. And he said unto them that stood by, take from him. Take from who? The, the lazy servant, the wicked servant. Take from him the pound and give it to him that hath ten pounds. He said, I want you to take the pound from the one and I want you to give it to the one that had 10 pounds. Look, look, at the, look at the response from the crowd. Verse 25. And they said unto him, Lord, he had 10 pounds. For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given and from him that hath not, even that he hath, shall be taken away from him. And here's what we can take away from this. God is an investor. Say, who's, who's God going to give to? He's going to give to those from whom he gets a good return. He's not, well, you're going to take the one pound he has? He's not producing. And they said unto him, Lord, he had 10 pounds. You're going to give to the guy that has 10 pounds? Yeah, I'm going to give him more because he's producing. For I say unto you that unto everyone which shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he shall be taken away from him. And look, this is a principle taught in the Bible. This is a principle taught in Scripture. That if you want God to give you more, you need to be faithful with what God has given you. Yeah. I always think, you know, it's funny. I, I remember years ago I had a conversation with this guy. He, was, he got upset and quit the church. But he's like, he comes to me and he's like, I want to be a pastor one day just like you. I want to be a pastor. And I looked at him and I said, how about you just work on getting yourself to church? Is the type of guy who would show up to church once every six weeks. But this is what I, what I tell young guys. You want, pa- you want pastor one day? You want to lead people? You want one day pa- pastor church? And look, I'm not, and I'm not, any, everything I have, I just preach it. Anything I have, the, the small amount of whatever my wife and I have been blessed was given to us by God. So I'm not up here boasting and bragging. But let me tell you something. If you think 175 people are going to show up on a Wednesday night to hear you preach verse by verse through a chapter of the Bible like there are here tonight, let me help you with something. Why don't you just work on getting your wife to church? Why don't you work on getting your children to church? Why don't you work on just being faithful with that which God has given you, and then we'll talk about the rest? People think like, oh, I'll just, I'll, I'll pretty much suck at all the small things that I've been given, but then one day I'm going to be Pastor Anderson. No, you'll be faithful when you've got a little bit, and then we'll talk. Well, then we'll schedule you for the Red Hot Preaching Conference. Luke 19, 27. Here's all I'm telling you. God is an investor, and God is not going to give you more if he doesn't see you being faithful with what he has given you. Luke 19, 27. But those mine enemies, remember those guys? Who are his enemies? His citizens, they hated him, right? His citizens hated him, and they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. But those, mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, where, where are we in the parable? 
We are after his return. He has established the kingdom. He set up the judgment seat of Christ. He's given, distributed. Some are going to reign over five cities. Some are going to reign over ten cities. Some are going to reign over whatever. And then, so we're getting ready to enter into the kingdom. What's the next thing? But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. This is why I tell you it's a dark parable. So what is Jesus saying? Here's what he's saying. He's telling the Christ-rejecting Jews. Because remember, why is he preaching this? Because he's nigh to Jerusalem. He's saying, not only are you not going to be in the kingdom, but you're going to be slain before Jesus at the beginning of his kingdom. This is why the Bible says in Revelation 3.9, Behold, Jesus says this, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. You say, who's he talking about when he says that he's going to slay them before, before me? Well, he's talking about the Jews. That's the point. And remember, they're antichrist, they're the synagogue of Satan, and they're the ones that are going to be promoting the antichrist and bringing him into power in the end times. But understand something, obviously, we're talking about Christ rejecting Jews. If there is a Jew out there that believes on Christ, then you know what? He's saved. He's on his way to heaven. The wrath of God abideth not on him. We are not talking about an ethnicity. We're talking about a religion. It's the synagogue of Satan. So it's the Jews, but really the idea is incorporated with those Jews. In the end times, it'll be anyone who helped the Antichrist. Anyone that put, helped put him into power. And in the Bible, and one day I'll, I'll have to kind of study this out and, and, and prepare a sermon on it. But the Bible seems to indicate that there is a reward and punishment system for those who help put, for those that are Antichrist, like the Jews. So before we go into the millennial reign... Jesus is going to have his enemies brought before him and slain before him. It's called the death penalty. You say, I can't believe. He's a king with a kingdom, with laws. You say, who's going to be put to death before the millennial reign? Well, the Jews. The Antichrist Jews that build that temple. You know that temple that all the Christians want to donate money to build? The Antichrist Jews are going to be put to death. The the reprobates. Anyone who took the mark of the beast, who's not dead at this point, is going to be put to death. Do you think people with mark, that took the mark of the beast are going to enter into the millennial reign? No. no, the Antichrist, religion, the Jews, the reprobates, those people are going to be put to death at the beginning of the millennial reign, and they will not enter into the millennial reign. But please understand this. There are human beings that are not in their glorified bodies that will be in the millennial reign, you and I, this is after the rapture, we'll be in our glorified bodies, we'll be ruling and reigning with Christ over these individuals. You say, who are the individuals? And this is going to get deeper than, than I have time to right now, but let me just throw this out there. You can study it out on your own. Who are the people that are going to enter, the, the, the human beings that are going to enter into the millennial reign? Number one, unsaved people that aren't reprobates. Because there's going to be unsaved people who don't take the mark of the beast. They're, they're not saved, they don't get raptured, but they didn't take the mark of the beast. They're not necessarily reprobates. They will enter into the millennial reign. Also, saved people. Saved people who got saved after the rapture. Because remember, during the wrath of God, which is the three and a half years that the Bible actually talks about, there's going to be 144,000 that are going to be preaching the gospel on this earth. There's going to be two witnesses that will be preaching the gospel on this earth. So there will be some people who get saved after the rapture. Well, those people will enter into the millennial reign, live out their lives, die, and then they will be resurrected at the end of the millennial reign. And I preached on that and taught on that at other times. So there'll be human beings that enter into the millennial reign. Who are they? Saved people that got saved after the rapture. It's not like after the rapture, you're like, you, you, you do the sinner's prayer and then you're just raptured, you know, right then and there. You, you live out your life, you die. And then the Bible says there's a resurrection after the millennial reign for anyone who got saved after the rapture till the great white throne judgment. And then just unsaved people. 
that aren't reprobates. But all the people that took the mark of the beast, all the reprobates, all the Antichrist Jews, all those people are going to get brought before the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to say, bring hither those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them and slay them before me. This is what Jesus teaches. This is what he taught. As he was getting ready to go into Jerusalem to be delivered up of the Jews, he said, let me tell you what's going to happen to these Antichrist Jews. They're going to put me to death. They're going to crucify me. And he says, and let me tell you what's going to happen to you, my servants, who I'm going to leave 10 pounds. Get ready, because the judgment is coming. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this parable. I know it's, it's deep, and I know it's dark, and I know it's difficult. But I pray you'd help us to learn it, understand it. And Lord, help, help us to realize when we're talking about the Jews, we're talking about the Jews' religion. We're talking about the synagogue of Satan. This antichrist religion that believes that there is a Christ, but it's not Jesus. And Lord, help us to, to understand that we're not, we're not talking about ethnicities. We're not talking about people who descended physically from Abraham. But we're talking about those who reject Christ and those that will promote and help the antichrist. Lord, help us to have a biblical worldview. Thank you for this parable that you gave us. It's a dark one. It's a, it's a difficult one. But it's needed. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. I think we have a baptism, so we'll prepare for baptism as we sing this song. Please turn your songbooks, page number 400.